Hello, and welcome to Failing Forward. Today we have the team from West Nile in Uganda who works in refugee settings to talk to us. And they're going to talk about all the things that went wrong in the process of designing a new kind of shelter for refugees. Yes, yes. my name is Hudson Madra. Uh, I support the center in uh, West Nile region, Uganda. Yes, and I'm uh, Sam Okewa. I'm the male advisor uh, from uh, all the projects of care in, in, in West Nile. Tell us a little bit about the project and the context you're going to be talking about today. We are going to share with you our experiences doing shelter programming for South Sudanese refugees, especially focusing uh, people with special needs. And this is started uh, from uh, around February 2017. So I will share with you the journey. We had uh, several failings <laughs> al along the way. <laughs> Great. And getting up and, and move on. Care started uh, intervening in the emergency December 2016. And specifically, uh, shelter programming uh, started in uh, February with funding from ECHO. In February 2017, Care started constructing temporary shelters for persons with special needs. These shelters were made of wooden poles and plastic sheets that were provided by UNHCR. And at that point in time, CARE was constructing about 60 shelters per day. Around June 2017, we had our first experience of, of failing. The temporary shelters that were built, they were widespread vandalism, they were theft, there were also complaints of gender-based violence due to these temporary shelters. It just needed a razor just to cut the whole thing and anybody accesses the, uh, the shelter. So in terms of safety, it was really uh, not good. So how did we know that we, we had uh, home visits to our, uh, our beneficiaries and we, we had community meetings where these issues were, were raised. And this led us into redesigning the temporary shelters. In the redesign to replace the like flaps, the original flaps, they were not really doors. So we put lockable doors. The roof was changed from a flat roof to gable to allow for drainage of rain. And also the location, most important, the location of these shelters were, were very key. It was revised. Initially, all the people with special needs were placed in one area and that made them even more vulnerable. In the new redesign, care placed these shelters near where PSNs can get support uh, from other able-bodied, but also near places like health centers, uh, police, where they can get more services. Mm -hmm. So that happened uh, around August. In September 2017, again, we had another uh, failing, which was brought by heavy rains. This was just the first phase of the rains on our shelters. So it damaged our shelters, but also at that point in time, there were inadequate building materials, the poles and the toplins were, were gone. And then also the lifespan of the temporary shelters was short. So by September 2017, about 2,000 temporary shelters were expired. And uh, boom, we have uh, PSNs who are again in, in dire need of shelter. We conducted uh, focus group discussions. Uh, beneficiaries told us they wanted smaller shelters. They told us about the need for repairs. And here, even the arrivals, the near arrivals of um, refugees was even higher than before. We were receiving about 300 to 500 new people every day. So at this point, uh, care again had to do a redesign. So at this point is when we transitioned to semi-permanent shelters. This was to provide more safety, more durability, and more dignity. So this was the first of its kind. 
nor any other agency doing shelter construction had, had attempted doing semi-permanent shelter. So CARE uh, piloted uh, uh, this. It was adopted by other agencies and also approved by UNHCR and, and, and the government. If CARE was the first organization doing semi-permanent shelters, where did you get the idea? The learning was from feedback from our beneficiaries. We did assessments and uh, they told us the shelters were not safe. After about four months, it's expired. So they wanted something more durable, but also something that is more or less like their traditional structure from South Sudan. Where So it was one from our lessons driven by our programming that needed to do dignified and safe shelters. We did a pilot and it worked well at that point in time. However, we didn't meet all the needs of our beneficiaries. So these shelters were not smeared like the walls, like how you plaster the wall. So we had not initially plastered it. And then we had issues of termites, <laughs> which we had not yet again experienced. So those were some of the challenges again we got into. And then also on the side of contractors who, con who are now constructing the shelters, we had challenges with payment of laborers. The contractors were recruiting laborers from the community, from the refugees. And in the end, we realized that they were not paying these laborers. We witnessed some riots, including some of our staff <laughs> being taken temporary hostage <laughs> because of lack of payment. The same season, rains were again back. And again, <laughs> it slowed down the, the construction of uh, the semi-permanent shelters. And yet the need was high. Our beneficiaries needed to occupy. So we had a lot of pressure from our beneficiaries to occupy, to the extent that some of them wanted to occupy even the buildings before it is actually completed. So what we did from those difficulties was to revise the contractor agreements. We introduced clauses like they have to be cleared by the government and witnesses by you know, the government that they have actually cleared the laborers, the local laborers. Also, smearing was added into the contract because initially it wasn't part of it. And when we realized that our beneficiaries were vulnerable people, uh, for example, somebody is unable, is on a wheelchair, cannot do plastering or smearing, of, which we had actually missed uh, earlier on. We had to include that as part of the, the whole scope of works for, for, for the contract. The other experience was that after that design, we had some also structural failures for this very semi-permanent, and which took us to again redesign, which took care of those structural challenges. So that actually has improved our semi-permanent structures considerably, even comparatively to agencies who are doing similar work. So now we have phased out all the other previous designs, and we are just focusing on this latest design. Around December and February this year, we did uh, some amount of evaluations. For example, about 83% of our beneficiaries uh, did say that the shelters meet their needs and expectations, which earlier on had uh, a lot of, we had lots of problems with that. The, the occupants say they feel much safer in our shelters. Uh, they are lockable, they can lock and go and engage in livelihood activities, which was the main worry before they couldn't leave the shelters because their properties would be stolen. So far, that is where our failing forward has taken us. So hopefully we will learn more. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that story. If you could start all over again at the beginning, what would you do differently? We would put as part and parcel of the programming is that we, should ha we would have knowledge that the programming will have to be adapted. We know that there is no one size fits all. Our designs and programming and shelter will have to be 
adaptable to uh, changes in situation, changes in needs. And therefore, definitely in our planning, there must be continuous consultations and assessment. That has to be done, especially to relating to safety and, and the dignity of the shelters that we do provide. The other thing that we would do differently is that uh, initially, we just thought for the beneficiary that they need shelters. Yes, in emergency, yes, it is life-saving. But still, the beneficiaries want something that is culturally appropriate for them. So even though it is an, in an emergency setting, you need to take into consideration the cultural appropriateness of, of the shelter. For example, some of the things that we noted was that the beneficiary wanted uh, something they are familiar with, something they can maintain. That is how the adaptation uh, helped us to, to realize that. There should be regular uh, assessments. The shelters have to be culturally appropriate. And then there should be a continuous uh, adaptation. What are recommendations you would make to other people in care who were responding in an emergency situation? What do you think they can learn from your experience? One big learning is that if you're providing life-saving shelter with a large influx of refugees who need shelter, you need to plan, you need to program taking care of the immediate needs, but also you should be aware of the long-term needs of the refugees. Because in this situation, we knew they were not going away any soon. The conflict was not going to end any soon. But I think it is good to program meeting the immediate needs, but also taking into account the long-term needs of the people we are serving. Maybe my colleagues could also add one or two. Yeah, thank you. And I think in addition to what some had said, generally shelter, the shelter program we have been doing, we have been looking at the house itself. But to realize that these beneficiaries need more than just the house. We didn't have anything uh, related to babies, uh, something that can keep them within the house household. And then also, we are only targeting PSNs, but we realized that PSNs are just a fraction of the big population. That is why we, we ended up having vandalism, because uh, the other concept, people who we consider able did not have actual materials to construct their own shelters, so they had to exploit the advantage that is at their door. PSNs who are unable to protect themselves, so they, they can shelters and build their own. So I think one some, something can learn from our experience is uh, as much as we target the patients, there should be also some little support that should be expanded to those who are involved so that they don't develop those key intentions. Like my colleague said, the programming has to be comprehensive. Initially, our shelters didn't have other amenities like a bathing shelter like a latrine, according to our assessments, also noted that these were areas that potentially caused the lack of safety or safety problems for, for our people because they had to look for where to, to go and help themselves. So when we are doing shelter programming, we shouldn't just look at where they're going to sleep, but also the related amenities that goes with the, with the shelter. You mentioned that UNHCR and others have adopted this semi-permanent shelter method. What convinced them to do that? First of all, uh, during the design review, all shelter actors were convinced to present their designs that they're using. And when the one of care was reviewed, it was the most detailed and comprehensive. It had the highest level of dignity from the perspective of the beneficiaries. So UNHCR uh, thought it wise that uh, let everyone adopt this and if there's anything which was lacking, all improvements were made on the care design and then the rest of the others were dropped. But also cost-wise, the one of care was a little bit cheap. It was around uh, $1,400 a unit. That was, those are the basic uh, indicators why UNHCR thought it wise. 
the others were constructed for around 1,800 dollars and going up to $2,000. That's interesting. When you described the process of moving to a more permanent shelter, I immediately thought that would be more expensive. But you're saying it's not. It's actually cheaper to do it this way. True, true, true. Wow, that's impressive. So the process you described of really working with beneficiaries and people in the community to figure out what kind of shelter they needed, can you think of a way that we can do that faster next time? So that it doesn't take us a year of experimenting. Uh, I think the biggest stumbling block with that is uh, it is a joint process. On our part as care, yes, we can try and uh, uh, improve and speed it up. But now, when it comes to, for instance, government and uh, the, the OPM, the other agencies, they will still want to follow their internal processes, which we unfortunately don't have control over. Advocacy, we can do a bit of advocacy too, because we all have the common interest of supporting the persons of concern. Uh, we think they can listen and uh, everybody tries to adjust their schedules and we shorten the time. Do you have any other thoughts or ideas you want to share before we close? Generally speaking also, shelter programming uh, also needs not to be in isolation of any other programming. For example, you saw that um, from our learnings, we realized that the PSNs needed to access uh, health services. They needed to access security services, psychosocial services. It is good to do this programming in, in, light, in view of the global needs of the PSN uh, person. We learned along the way, though it wasn't initial. But of course, there are also many other players. But it's also important to note that care also deliberately integrated, uh, you know, GBV programming within this. So whereas the PSN is receiving a shelter, is also receiving GBV prevention messages, uh, knowing the, the referral pathway when they need. It was clear in our assessments that our shelters allowed women particularly uh, to, to engage in other livelihoods uh, projects. That was not the initial intention that we, we thought to contribute to. But then we realized that, oh, the shelters actually allowed women for more freedom of movement and to engage in other activities such as livelihood, which actually improved their well-being, but also other risk factors to, to GBV. That was wonderful. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate you taking time to talk. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Tune in in the upcoming weeks. We've got more examples coming from Uganda and some great examples from USAID's Learning Lab, Madagascar, and Mali who are all going to talk about Sailing Forward and what it means for them. If you're interested in participating, feel free to reach out, email ejanok at care.org, and we'll schedule a time for you to talk about Sailing Forward.